Hi, everybody. Happy holidays. Uh, I'm Christine Dolan, and we are two, with two authors today to talk about a book that I am endorsing, The Courage to Face COVID-19, with Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. So first of all, it, it's a wonderful book. I love it. Uh, you know, Peter, we, you and I have talked about this many times. When the doctor, when I've interviewed the doctors, uh, I will say to them, you know, don't get rid of the, the medical speak so people can understand. So I want to say congratulations to you and congratulations to John for taking your body of experience and putting it into, and there's no chapter that anybody cannot read who doesn't have a medical or a science background. And I think that that's really important for people to know. This, this is actually a book for, for anybody that's out there that wants to find out what happened behind this entire story. So let's start with, how did you guys meet? Because you, you didn't know each other beforehand, my understanding is, from the book. No, no, I no. I'll let Go John ahead, tell John. the story. Yeah, I'll let John tell the story. Well, I was um, uh, at the beginning of 2020, I, like anyone else paying attention, began to wonder, you know, what exactly is going on here? And we have these early reports from Wuhan and then from Milan, Italy. I was paying attention to the reporting out of Milan because I've lived in Italy and I, I love the country and the people. But I quickly perceived that this isn't really adding up what's being told. For, for one thing, it became apparent after just a couple of weeks, there were actually some brave pathologists in, in Italy that did autopsies. And they did an, an early autopsy study of confirmed COVID deaths. Um, not, you know, looks like they, they're in the hospital and a bunch of other things are going on. But like we've confirmed that these people died of this syndrome and what we're seeing is it's very risk stratified. It, it, mm -hmm. We're seeing it's, it's, it's mostly elderly people with multiple comorbidities. So you contrast that with the reporting in the United States in which it was represented as a sort of unassailable monster. There's nothing we can do about it. There are no treatment modalities. All we can do, including young athletes, including the youngest, strongest people, all we could do was stay at home. And there was very quickly talk as well about a vaccine that was being developed. And I thought a lot of this just doesn't make sense to me based on some of my familiarity with medical history. But I knew I needed a top medical scientist to help me with real credentials, real medical experience to help me interpret this. Um, the question was, who is he and where do I find him? And not only does he have to be a top medical scientist, he also himself has to be questioning what I perceive to be an orthodoxy. So where do I find this guy and will he have time for me? And then as Providence would have it, I, I discover through some video recordings that the guy who I really need to talk to lives two miles away from my home in Dallas, Texas. I saw Dr. McCullough. He was out jogging and he recorded a video of himself talking about early treatment. He just recovered from COVID. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. And then just a few weeks later, I saw a C-SPAN video of him testifying before the U.S. Senate. And, I, and then I thought, well, I have to talk with this gentleman. So I contacted him and he came in for a studio interview. A friend of mine has a studio in Deep Ellum. It's a kind of 
legendary place for blues music. Right. And he came in and we had this interview, which was filmed, beautifully filmed. In fact, I think it's become kind of the classic Peter McCullough interview. We had this wonderful rapport. And so we decided to write a book together. So, Peter, what did, what did you think of when, when somebody who's a true crime reporter like John is, who reached out to you? I mean, did you think at that point in time that there's enough questions here that it really needed to have that type of investigative skills? No, but by that time, I had talked to a lot of <clears throat> different reporters. I actually had specifically reached out to Whitney Webb, an investigative reporter. Uh, I had just come up on my interview with Tucker Carlson, where Tucker Carlson started to get worked up on what I was telling him what was going on. And, and, he, and people keep asking me about the motives, you know, uh, what are the motives? Who are the perpetrators? And I, I you know, one of the statements I met, made to Tucker, I said, that's going to be up to investigative journalists to figure this out. I'm a doctor. I'm just, in a sense, reporting the news. Uh, but, but before I had met John, I had about a year of uh, just a dramatic change in my life. It was a mind-blowing new reality that, that uh, my former friends, uh, colleagues in an academic medical center, uh, were no longer talking to me. They weren't treating patients with COVID. They, they were gone. They were, I guess, working from home. My research team, it just unilaterally decided they're working from home and never going to return to the medical center. And so it was a pretty lonely place. Myself and uh, my chief of cardiology, we worked together. He's featured in the book. We had uh, you know, started to work on different treatment protocols, got a big research grant, investigation on new drug applications, started working with hydroxychloroquine. Peter Novaro specifically reached out and called me one day in clinic from the White House. Peter said, can you help me with this emergency use authorization? It's kind of pinned in hydroxychloroquine, which didn't need an EUA. It was already a drug on the market. And so Kevin Willen and I wrote uh, a letter to, uh, to the FDA and tried to make the case that we need to e either expand the EUA completely a lot of you know do research without having to do investigational drug applications project by project or get rid of the EUA altogether and just use the product as we saw fit and before I knew it I had been caught up now in a, a story as a practicing doctor an academic doctor I, I was caught up in something very big something that was way way above my head and I knew it and when John came along in many ways, it was providential because I needed help. I needed help from an expert who could look at things in terms of evidence and look at things in the context of a crime. That's not something doctors can do. No, I, 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 I agree with you. It, is, it, it, it takes a certain amount of training, but it also takes, I think if, if you're actually in the medical field, you may be too close to it to really understand. Um, it, it, it's like you, you can investigate the media, but at the same time, you have to take, you need somebody from the outside to, to bounce ideas off of. What was it? You both talk about the effect uh, of this on, your, on your, your mother, John, and Peter, your father. Talk about the personal side of this, because I think a lot of times people think that, you know, people who speak out are people who participate in panels. We don't all talk about the personal side. Um, if it's in my case, it's a brother, um, two brothers. But I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, just share that with it, because I, I think that humanizes the book because you guys do, do you know, share so so beautifully in the book. Peter, um, John, go ahead. My, um, I, 
was still living at the end of 2019. I still had an apartment in Vienna, Austria. Um, I came home to visit my family for Christmas at the very end of 19. I was in Dallas at the beginning of 20 when I start seeing these first reports of this novel infectious disease from Wuhan. And quickly it became apparent that it was unlikely I was going to be able to travel back to, to Europe anytime soon. So I was holed up in my mother's house. Um, we get into the, the late spring and early summer and my mother says, well, I'm not going to let this end my social life. I'm going to see my children. I'm going to see my grandchildren. I'm going to go out. I'm going to play cards. I'm not going to let this thing um, ruin life. So I said, well, we need to prepare for the eventuality that you're going to catch. Um, she says, well, I'm not worried about it. She's sort of the devil may care. She gets it. And I said, all right, mom, um, you need to contact your physician who happened. Her internist happened to have a major Dallas hospital affiliation. And I mean, I think that's a big part of the story. If your internist, if your primary care physician has a major hospital affiliation, then you better watch out because they're not going to be very amenable to early treatment. That's how it turned out. My mother asked for a prescription of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. At this point, I was following um, Professor Didier Raoult in France. I was following his early protocol. I'd also seen uh, a doctor in Monroe, New York, um, uh, uh, Dr. Zeb Zelenko, who, who was also endorsing the same combination drug therapy. My mom sends a note to her doctor and says, I would like for you to write a prescription of this. And the doctor says, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that. So here I am with my 74-year-old mother. She's fit, but she has hypertension and she's 74. And I just kind of run a risk-benefit analysis on this. I mean, I took hydroxychloroquine as malarial prophylaxis in Africa, and no, no doctor even thought twice about it. I knew it was a safe drug. Right. Um, but her primary care physician says, I'm not going to prescribe it. So at that moment, I thought, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to potentially watch my mother sicken to the point of having difficulty breathing? Am I going to then have to make the call to take her to the hospital or to call an EMT because she can't, can no longer breathe and has to be hospitalized. And I knew at that point, if she's hospitalized, I probably won't see her again. I mean, there'll, uh, there will be a, an isolation, you know, who knows? It's almost like, you know, all ye who enter here abandon all hope. I mean, that, that's what it was looking like with the hospitals. So I scrambled around and I found a family friend who's a retinal surgeon. And these retinal surgeons had a unique insight into the, the toxicity or the lack thereof of hydroxychloroquine because a pathology they will sometimes see in their practice are those who take hydroxychloroquine for lupus, lupus or rheumatoid arthritis after about 10 years right. of 200 to 400 milligrams a day for, for um, lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, they'll, they'll get a little 
um, pigmentation, a toxicity in the retina. So the, the retinal doctors were some of the first guys to recognize all of these safety warnings about hydroxychloroquine are nonsense. People take this stuff for a decade without developing any problems with it. So as luck would have it, he prescribed these medications. I went and picked them up. I gave mom her first dose at dinner that night. I'll always remember it was a Tuesday night. The next day, she still felt pretty lousy, but about the same. I gave her her second dose at, at breakfast. She then took her third dose at dinner. I went for a long walk. It was summer. Came back home from my long walk, peeked into her bedroom, and I could immediately see her color was better. She was watching a Netflix show. She was laughing at something the detective hero said. She just looked better. And I said, well, how is it, Mom? And she said, I think I'm feeling better. And that was it. That was, mm -hmm. that was, it. I mean, she was tired for a few days. So that was my personal experience of recognizing you don't wait for your 74 year old mom to sicken to the point of hospitalization. This is completely irrational. And then this is what I then saw Dr. McCullough stating, but he, it wasn't an individual conducting his own little personal science experiment with his mom. It was a credential doctor who was saying it. So that's when I knew that this is a truly huge story. And Peter, your, your, your father, Thomas, um, it, it, you know, I share that because I, we've all heard you speak many, many times, but until I read the book, I, I had not known about your, your dad, Tom. Yeah, it's true. And I think one of the reasons why people find the book so gripping is they themselves have their own family vignette. They have their own story. Mm -hmm. and, and many of us in our age range we're called the sandwich generation. So we had both children we were worried about in their school and their progress and what the pandemic was doing. Then our parents, specifically in my case, my parents were 81. They had retired in Fairhope, Alabama and, you know, enjoyed a, a wonderful retirement for many years. But my dad did develop dementia. And uh, in January of uh, 2020, he had uh, gone up on a ladder and tried to do uh, something ill-advised, like change a, a, a filter in a vent. And he fell off the ladder and, and had a complicated pelvic fracture. The pelvis was broken. Three areas was unstable. So um, he had been hospitalized, could not have surgery. Uh, there was no way to repair it. He simply needed to be flat on his back and let it heal. So he was in Robertsdale, Alabama Rehab Center. Uh, we started to hear about the virus emanating out of Wuhan. We were communicating with colleagues in Milan, and I had a lot of friends in Milan. I had lectured there many times. So I was communicating with them, you know, is this real and, 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 and who is this affecting? We learned pretty quickly that it was elderly people who were compromised in some way, who had heart or lung disease or had cancer. My dad's case, he's flat on his back. He is respiratory mechanics. He has dementia. He's high blood pressure, diabetes, other problems. My dad would be, uh, you know, very, very high risk for mortality. So I take the trip to Robertsdale to in, in, in February as COVID is advancing and take a look at my dad, talk to my mom. And I said, you know, executive decision. We've got to get dad out of here and get him to Dallas in the hopes of, of rehab. And but also in the hopes that if something happens, at least I can have some, uh, you know, overall 
medical authority over over his fate. So uh, I hire a long distance ambulance. Uh, they pack him up. It's very pleasant. He watches movies. He jokes with these guys. A 12 hour <laughs> trip. He uh, goes from Robertsdale in uh, Alabama to Presbyterian Village in Dallas is one of the top rehab centers. He's there. He gets organized. My wife and I are going every day, bringing our dog. And he takes his first few painful steps and, you know, starts to get some basic toileting and things like this. And then we get this dreaded call that one of the nurses on the unit has COVID. And then a few days later, we get the call, your dad has COVID. And that whole sequence, it's in the book. And the title of the chapter is To the Best of My Ability. And uh, Christine, what I faced is I faced a a proposition right. that as a doctor, was I going to follow what Anthony Fauci and the NIH said is to let people get as sick as possible, let them be hospitalized in a sense, let the virus slaughter my dad, or am I going to do what is in my, you know, to the best of my ability to use my judgment, my understanding the literature, communicating with others, the art and science of medicine right here, right now. And that's what I did. You know, I, I hate to think about this, but um, I lost my mother 20 years ago, my dad 12 years ago. And I'm the, I was the youngest in the family, but I was also the only girl. And um, so I was there to the very end with my parents. And I lived my, in my eight, last eight months of my dad's life. I lived his, I helped him out, you know, live out his bucket list. My mother was very ill when she died. But I, ha I have to say this, the stories that I heard as a journalist of people not being in, not being able to advocate for their loved ones in the hospital broke my heart. Uh, the fact that people couldn't get their loved ones, you know, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, the fact that when if their, if their loved one died in New Jersey, people were talking to me in New York back in 2020, if their loved ones died, they would only able to have maybe four or five people at the gravesite. The rest of the family had to stay outside. I mean, the, when I think about some of some of the lack of closure, lack of taking responsibility, not being able to go the distance for your loved ones. I mean, to me, that's the most frightening part of this, I think, because you don't you don't it, on a human level, you don't get to have that closure. It's like going into a war zone. You, you know, you go out to get a, a bottle of milk, you come back and your home's bombed. You don't get to say goodbye. And that's the part that I'm not certain for a lot of people who lost loved ones. I, I think that that's going to carry a lot of a lot of harm. So I appreciate the fact that in your book, you you get into this. Tell me, Peter, and I don't want I don't want you guys to give away the, the whole book because I want people to buy this book. Okay. I, I'm recommending it. I'm putting it on our recommended list. I'm not putting every book that's out there on the recommended list. This one I am, and I don't normally write book reviews, but I'm going to for this. When, when did you have that aha moment, Peter, that was a professional light bulb? It, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the North star yet, but it was that, you know, sitting back one night saying, you know, something's wrong with this picture. What was that moment like for you? You know, in March of 2020, I was fully engaged. I had a very high position in a major academic medical center. I was running one of the big uh, subcommittees for COVID-19, our disaster response. I was really in the thick of it. Uh, we weren't that busy in Dallas. Uh, we had shut down the operating rooms, the catheterization laboratories, the clinics. 
We are expecting a tidal wave of patients. We are watching um, uh, Andrew Cuomo on TV holding these press conferences in New York. And basically, it's, it just sounded like a tsunami was going to go across the country. And, uh, you know, quickly, I did everything I could as an academic physician. Uh, but I did something for the first time that I had never done before is I took a step as a public figure. And by invitation, I was invited uh, to write almost a monthly op-ed in The Hill. And I did. And, and, and I started writing about what I was seeing. And one of the first things I wrote in The Hill is that, listen, this isn't spreading uniformly across the country. This is in hotspots. This is flaring up. Uh, we're hearing that people living in closed spaces, vertical, high-rise buildings without any uh, open windows, um, <clears throat> where there are uh, obviously many senior citizens, people living in, in uh, kind of vert vertically integrated generational households, that these were the risk groups. We heard quickly, by the way, that Blacks and Hispanics had uh, nearly double the, the uh, mortality rate of uh, Caucasians, clearly the elderly. And, and as we were working through this, I had already treated hundreds of patients in an FDA-approved protocol with hydroxychloroquine uh, as a prophylactic, and then those who got sick as healthcare workers in a, in a primordial multidrug protocol. And as I communicated with doctors uh, at that time, and we were freely communicating. We had, um, we had an NIH all-comer conference call for the NIDDK division, and we were exchanging um, uh, uh, vignettes of what's going on. The inpatient doctors were freely communicating with the outpatient doctors. I mean, it was really all hands on deck. I was proud of what was going on. But by, uh, I want to say by April or May, I made the observation to Dr. Harvey Risch, professor at Yale, because we were uh, communicating. I said, Harvey, there's not a single paper in the medical literature describing how patients should be treated in order to prevent hospitalization and death. And you just mentioned the horrors of the hospital. In my field in cardiology, we consider both a hospitalization and death as adverse outcomes and that they would want to, we would want to avoid them. So I set out with as the first author and Harvey as the senior author to write the very first paper that would teach doctors how to treat patients with COVID-19 to prevent hospitalization and death. And it was at that time frame, also April or May of 2020, when I realized this gap in the medical literature is unheard of. We always have early protocols for heart attacks and for heart failure and for strokes and any new condition, let's say new, some new infection. Before you know it, there's two or three protocols. In fact, doctors compete for the notoriety of having a protocol. I would have thought we would have had a Harvard protocol and a Duke protocol and a Mayo, but, but suddenly there was, there was this giant void and I rushed to fill it and boy, I was glad I did. Well, you know, I would tell you, Peter, at the same time that you, that you were noticing that, on this side of the table, those those institutions that normally would have competed in the past to be the first for the protocols, they were reaching out to us in the in the press to join their conference calls every day, which is interesting because they were pushing the narrative nothing but the vax at that point in time. There's some pushback with certain people within Harvard and Stanford and some other places, but it was a real push. It was a real reach out to the press at the time. John, when you, when you, you know, you, you've studied and, and you've taken a deep dive into medical history in the past and also forensic medical history, what was, what was the, the, the catalyst? That, the, what, what was it that caught your attention early on when you looked at this? Um, well, from medical history, we, we know that every generation of, of practicing physicians, go, going back to the late 18th century in Europe, 
every generation at any given time um, makes errors. Um, mm-hmm. it, medical science. But ever, it, ever on this scale, have they made this type of an error, John? Well, sure, sure. I mean, uh, one, a story that has long haunted me that, that we write about in the book is that of Professor Ignat Semmelweis mm-hmm. in Vienna. You know, I lived in Vienna for many years. Um, I did some translation work for a pathologist at the Vienna Institute of Forensic Medicine. And I'd sometimes go hang out with her at her office um, in the the Vienna Institute, which is located um, right next to the building where um, Professor Semmelweis had his first flash of deductive reasoning. A colleague of of his, uh, Professor Jakob Kolechka, was the head of anatomy at the University of Vienna Medical School, he cut his hand with a scalpel um, during an anatomy class after they were examining a cadaver. And Professor um, Kolechka quickly fell very, very ill with the same symptoms that Semmelweis had observed in maternity wards. He had observed that women in these maternity wards, they would give birth, and shortly after giving birth, they would develop a, an infection of the uterus that often proved to be fatal. And some of this one maternity ward in, in particular had like a 20% mortality rate. So some of us thought, no, wait a minute. What if the students, he observed, the students are coming from anatomy class where I just saw Professor Kolechka die after being cut by a scalpel. They're coming from anatomy class to the maternity ward to perform a sort of obstetrics class. What if they're transferring some kind of corruption from the cadavers in anatomy class to the pregnant women? Let's right. see if they wash their hands with chlorinated lime, which is an old grave diggers agent for cutting down on putrefaction, what will happen? And he noticed that the the rate of purpural fever in the maternity clinic then quickly precipitously declined almost down to zero. So I go into this story. I love this story. um, Because when he shared his insight, all of the medical eminences of Europe at the time said, you're crazy. And his his protocol was actually actively suppressed. He was fired from his professorship at the University of Vienna. And as he became more and more agitated about this, he was admitted to an insane asylum where he died in an insane asylum. I mean, I could go on. I mean, John Snow was a physician in London who observed that, that these these contaminated wells causing cholera outbreaks, he realized it's a contaminant in the well. So we go all the way up to, through, through modern history, think of smoking. I mean, we had physicians, ranking physicians in the United States who were denying that there's a link between smoking and lung cancer. So anyway, a long story made short, I realized these clowns in Washington who were claiming to have the final under scientific understanding of this thing that's just emerged, this can't be true. And why are they categorically rejecting any observation from treating physicians in the field? 
That does not make sense. That would be like a general in the Pentagon saying, I'm not going to listen to a Marine captain in the combat theater. I know here in Virginia, in Arlington, Virginia, I know what's going on in Iraq and Fallujah, 7,000 miles away. I'm not going to listen to a combat officer on the front line. That, that, it's the equivalent. And I think the military analogy is one that we should bear in mind with this story. So, I, I mean, I could give you multiple examples of this. I knew instinctively, but also quite quickly from studying what was going on, that our official medical establishment in Washington um, either was deliberately concealing the truth or had no idea where the truth lay. So when you talk about the, the title, tell guys, tell, tell me how you came together on the title, The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. Well, let me tell you, Christine, I have, uh, at the time we uh, published this book and we put it to print, uh, I had already had 650 peer-reviewed papers published and cited the National Library of Medicine. So I was in the business of producing manuscripts, either as a first author or as a senior author, and then, you know, at, at times a middle author. But I had learned from mentors years ago, the title really matters in any written piece. So John and I spent a lot of time on this title. We spent time on it. We felt the word courage mattered uh, because it seemed to be a separator of people who stepped forward and did things and people who didn't. And it wasn't just courage to take care of a sick patient face to face and risk uh, the infection itself, but it was the, the courage to to question what was going on, the, the courage to, um, in, in a sense, uh, not buckle under to what became very heavy handed types of um, dictatorial authoritarian statements that came out of Washington. And it wasn't all about treating COVID. That's the reason why we didn't say courage to treat COVID. The idea is to face this issue, to actually face the issue, what it is, not only the infection, but this entire um, array of, of things that were going on in the context of the pandemic. So it was courage to face all this. I knew so many doctors in my circles that said, you know, I can't wait for this to be over with. I'm putting my head in the sand. This isn't in my area. I'm certainly not going to do it. McCullough, what are you doing? Uh, you're not an infectious disease doctor. Have somebody else tell us what to do. And that's where that first part about courage to face COVID-19 um, uh, you know, I, you know, my only regret is if we would have said courage to face it, uh, we wouldn't have been scrubbed off so many uh, social media platforms uh, by having COVID-19 in the title. But John can talk about the rest. Well, well go ahead, John, because I do have some follow up questions. Go ahead. Well, I mean, the, the thing that that I noticed quite quickly, um, and it again, partly goes back to my personal history living in, in Vienna, Austria. When I was living in Vienna in the late 90s and early 2000s, a, a generation of journalists were coming of age who they all kind of competed to tell the most shocking story of how their parents or their grandparents were complicit with the crimes of the Third Reich. And the, the underlying 
sentiment or or presumption in a lot of their 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 attitude i should say is had i been a 38 year old young professor at the university of vienna when the germans annexed austria in 1938 i certainly would have stood up against the german army and the gestapo and i would have had the courage to do the right thing and i remember thinking at the time you know cocktail parties listening to this kind of presumption thinking well no you wouldn't have because most people when there's this mass highly emotional highly authoritarian action that is afoot in which the state is using propaganda and fear in order to push the mass of, of, of humanity of society in the direction in which the masters of the state want it to go there are very few individuals that have the guts to stand up against the tribe and say no i'm exercising my independent rationality and judgment and i'm not going to play this game very very few people have the guts to do this and so when i saw dr mccullough standing before the senate i realized he is likely going to be one of the leaders of the the movement of individual rational men and women that defend our constitutional republic and say no to this authoritarian medical tyrannical movement that is clearly afoot and gathering steam by the day so i felt covid-19 is a sort of artifact you have the virus itself SARS-CoV-2 the syndrome of of the health syndrome or the 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 disease syndrome that it causes but then you have this massive social and political artifact around it and it's the courage to face the whole thing peter you and i've talked about this or been in the, in the presence talking about integrity and faith how much did that play for you because i've often believed that unless you go through something unless you've been through sort of the war zones and don't don't have that, that crisp taste of faith and, and integrity and really want to do the right thing for the right reason, for no reason, just to do the right thing. That, you know, because when you do step out, there's always going to be pushback. How, how strong did that play in, in your role and your leadership for this? The, the pushback uh, month by month <clears throat> grew greater and greater. And, you know, I started getting threatening messages from administration, little gossipy things that people didn't like what I was doing. And yet, yet I was, you know, I, I was by the book. I had investigation on the drug application. I had a grant treating patients, publishing the results. Then I quickly worked uh, to show that the protocol that I had devised actually could be reduced to practice and save lives. I did that. I formed collaborations all over. I mean, I, I did what I was trained to do. The thing that I could not do that other doctors did is when sick patients called them, particularly their senior citizens, and they said, I'm, I got a fever, I've got COVID, I can't breathe. Those doctors turn their backs on the patients. I think the real question is, what does that feel like to a doctor who did that to a patient? And let me tell you, Christine, you know, we had a million people lose their lives 
in that scenario. And every single one of them called out for help. We had 10 million hospitalizations. Every one of them called out for help. You've, you've, you've pointed out the agony that these people died alone. They died alone. They never saw their loved ones again. Uh, many of them actually never even saw the, the body again at, at the level of a, a funeral. It was cremations. And, and so, right. you know, this was a line that I was not going to um, uh, tow. I saw other doctors doing it. Um, I, I, think there, I think there is a real role for faith uh, and for one to have a, a strong faith. And, and, and I have to tell you, I saw doctors in India who are Hindus doing this and Muslims doing this and Confucius and others. This was a worldwide calamity. I did a few things on Clubhouse, which was a way internationally for people to drop in and tell me what was going on. And I realized that something had come into the minds of people to hurt other peoples at the beginning of this crisis. And they were hurting each other through lockdowns and through all these draconian measures. There was euthanasia going on in some countries where they were giving you know, 40 to 60 milligrams of morphine and just putting people down. There were senior doctors telling younger doctors, don't try to treat people. Uh, there was great harm being exacted from one person to another. And it just escalated. Then they ushered in the vaccines and you saw what happened there. But I do think that we, we fell into some type of spiritual warfare. Uh, years ago, <clears throat> when I did my first human trafficking investigation, and this is a global investigation, um, it was very disturbing. I didn't know anything about this topic. And then when I took on the Catholic Church, which is my heritage, two years later, uh, when it imploded in, in Boston, and then the global report for that, that hit, that hit me because it was my heritage. And I remember one day receiving a phone call from two women who are, in fact, the experts on torture, ritual abuse, torture worldwide. And I was having a bad day writing. And I asked them, give me something for me to wrap my head around this, because I, I can't understand who are these people that do these things? Who, I mean, who, who is this level, level of a commodifier? And what they said to me reminds me of what I see today. There are people on this earth who inflict harm on others for their own pleasure. And I, and I can't think that, you know, it's a painful story. And, and John and Peter, what you've done with this book is through the eyes of both of what you saw, John, as a, as a true crime reporter and how you analyze the story and how you analyzed Peter's walk through this because you you get into it and it's it's beautifully written it's very well laid out it is devoid of you know anybody can understand this so it's not written in your medical speak peter <laughs> i mean it's it really it's wonderful and at the same time it gives the emotion for people to understand that everybody is everybody needs to have a little bit of courage because it can go a long way collectively is there anything that you guys want to say before we sort of um, check out of this this interview? Because I, I really want you to, I, I want people to read this book. So, so Peter, do you have any message yeah. you want people to say? I wanted to, I I wanted to finish up on the title, the subtitle, mm -hmm. Preventing okay. Hospitalizations and Deaths While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. That's what I, and doctors in my circles, we estimate about 500 doctors in the United States, really we're trying to save the entire country. We have a million doctors, the vast majority on the sideline. And what we saw basically form 
is, is what John and I call the biopharmaceutical complex. That is the fusion or the fascism of incredibly powerful entities. At the top, it, it could be the World Economic Forum, the Gates Foundation, Wellcome Trust, Rockefeller Foundation, the World Health Organization, you know, all these related entities that have one goal, and that is a needle in every arm, CEPI, which is formed by Gates and uh, WEF, Unitaid, the EcoHealth Alliance, Gavi. All, the, uh, yeah, Gavi, all the regulatory agencies, the MHRA, the TGA, NIH, uh, CDC, FDA, uh, everything congealed into this complex. And the complex basically said, we will have fear, suffering, hospitalizations, and death. And nobody is going to get in the way of stopping that, 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 that driver in order to get a needle in every arm. And I really think that that's what this was all about. When I told Tucker Carlson that in May of 2021, I said, I think this whole thing is about getting the world mass vaccinated. And, and, and that's when people started to get uncomfortable. And lo and behold, now three years into it, it looks like looks like that's the case. Well, I mean, Gates actually said that in the past, too. And every time that Fauci went before, you know, the Hill, I think it was Jim Jordan that asked him, OK, let's talk about herd immunity. So at what percentage is that, you know, is it it's 60 percent, 65, 70, 80 percent? You know, and, and he and Fauci did not have the integrity to come forward and say, well, we just want to vaccinate, you know, 7.7, 8.7, whatever the billions are on the planet. And that, and the hell with everybody. That's our goal. He just kept on changing the goalposts, which actually, I think, gave people like John and myself, who were trained to look at this through the eyes of investigators, every time that the story, the longer the story went on, the longer the fraud changed, the more that the, uh, the, the goalposts changed, people like Fauci were walking pieces of evidence. And John, I mean, I mean, it, it, there's a certain amount of, I don't want to say excitement because it's such a sordid and sad story when you think about it. But I was glad it went on as long as it did because in Fauci never shut up. Because he was yes, the one kind uh, of voice. Fauci um, and his friend, um, Bill Gates, um, they, they are very loquacious. They like to be in front of the camera. They like to, to talk about what they're doing. And Peter and I really came to the same conclusion. I mean, there's been a lot of planning for the next viral pandemic, whether it be virulent influenza or virulent or virulent coronavirus like SARS in 03. We believe SARS in 03 was the sort of forbidden fruit that really blew this thing up to the dimension that, that it was. The idea was, okay, another SARS is going to come. And when it does, we're going to have this huge edifice in place, a network of public and private partnerships to respond to it. And the response, and we're all going to invest in this, and this is going to be a uniform global phenomenon or global plan and global action, is solely uh, mass develop, rapid development and mass deployment of vaccines. There's not going to be anything else. There, there won't be a discussion of any treatment. Contagion control, lockdowns, and then when we have the vaccine, a needle in every arm. 
So people say, well, like, how would you, you know, in the final analysis, what is the story? And I, and I told our publisher, Tony Lyons at Skyhorse, it's a mafia story. It's an organized crime story um, in which there was a perception years ago that a emerging infectious disease pandemic is something that will afflict the entire human race and we will be in a position to provide a product that the governments will pay for. The governments will do the R&D. These, these profligate treasuries will pay for everything and force everybody to receive it. And then they'll get boosters, you know, you know, on top of it all. So we, we think it's an organized crime story. And we believe the evidence supports our contention. These are this is a mafia. Well, we have I've reported on this in the past that we actually have the documentation for the layout for the end goal of what they wanted to do, which is a seasonal shot for everybody on the planet. And, and like they think of, you know, the, 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 the flu, the seasonal flu shot. Uh, we know how they build the end to set up the economic market for the pharmaceutical. But here's the thing that I find to be most disturbing is that when the, the U.S. pharmaceutical companies with their scientists, and I don't care whether it's the bat scientists that are out there, the coronavirus hunters or not, they all knew in 2020 that mRNA, when tested on mice and, and for SARS and MERS 15 years ago, they all knew that those mice were damaged or dead. And that there was a paper that was pre-published in January of 2020 that was later published in January of 2021, acknowledging the fact of what the people, what the people today were involved with in terms of the mRNA knew about what happened to the mice in the past. So this was consciously without a conscience implemented to put people at risk. And that was never disclosed to people which denied the entire human race that ever took anything from Moderna or um, Pfizer that had mRNA in it. So those no, nobody, and we distribute, we allow the distribution of this overseas. We had DOD contracting with these, these pharmaceuticals here. This is our taxpayers' money. So as crazy as it sounds, our money is being used to kill us, to damage us. I mean, that, that's pretty psychotic when you get down to just how to live in humanity. But at the same time, they knowingly, consciously, and with no conscience, implemented this plan. And I think that's the frightening part of it. And, and, I, th and I, I commend you, Dr. Peter McCullough, for being on the front lines of this so that, you know, we never see this again. We never see this again. It's well, at this point in time, I've been stripped of, of everything in my career. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the mistake that's been made in the calculus in doing that is somehow that would make me quieter. Uh, you know, the most dangerous people in the world are people who have nothing more to lose. And so, uh, no, my voice will, will become even stronger. And I'm going to be bold and relentless until this crisis is closed. Do you, do you, do, Peter, do you have any regrets? No, I wouldn't have done it any other way. I wouldn't have done it any other way. In many, in many ways, my whole career was preparing me for this. When you look, when you look back on on how it how it all unfolded, right? 
Yeah, many elements of my life, actually, I'd say, uh, when I look back on it, I was being prepared uh, for this. And so uh, in many ways, uh, I'm the right person for the, uh, for the role. And, uh, and it's so interesting to see how other characters are playing a role, most recently Elon Musk and, and how others in the Senate and Congress. And John and I have had a chance to get to know Ron Johnson. We're getting ready to meet dignitaries and other countries now. Uh, this is a worldwide struggle. There's, there are people in our circles all over. There's a small number of people who seem to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And there are, is a vast number of people who are clouded, that they seem to have scales over their eyes. I, I want to thank you, Peter, because when uh, Senator Johnson last had his roundtable and um, you were all sitting at the table for the, for the afternoon, you'd met uh, the day before, and it came to a point in the conversation, and I was watching it from afar. That was the only one I was not able to attend in person. And I was waiting for somebody to say, take this off the shelf, stop these shots. And yeah. God bless you. You, you. you stepped up and you said what needed to be said when it came to the yeah, YouTube. Yeah. In fact, that was the conclusion of our deliberation. Someone had to set it. Said I was co-moderating now the second panel that, that I had with Senator Johnson within 48 hours. Member of Parliament Andrew Brigden in the UK said the same thing. Mm -hmm. Malcolm Roberts uh, uh, and another member of Parliament down in Australia. Now Christine Anderson, an EU member of Parliament, doing great uh, across India. Colleagues in India making the same call. So many times, it's, again, it's about courage. Someone just having the courage to make the call and do it very publicly uh, in order to get this whole ball rolling. It, it, they do have to go off the market. There's no doubt about it. That is part of the, yeah, there's, that's part of the resolution. Another thing that needs to happen is the emergency declarations, both the national one by the president and the medical one by HHS, they actually also have to close. That has to happen. And the state, the state emergencies here in the United States and the provincials in Australia. I mean, all, all what it's not just the, the federal, it, it's not just the in Brussels. Everybody needs to pull this, stop this ball game because they're going to lose this. Right. I mean, they're losing it already. But, you know, at the same time, there should be no negotiation with the devil on this. People need to be held accountable. Right. Completely. I mean, I really, because and, and I, I also think that they need to be held accountable because if they're not held accountable, they're going to try this again. Agree. People should never forget this. All right. The courage to face COVID-19. I think this is great. Malcolm's a good friend. We've worked together, um, and it's 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 going to be interesting to see what they do in Australia. I, I hope I I don't have a lot of hope now for you know what the Canadians can do, but we certainly certainly need to save Western civilization. John, do you do you think that the uh, EU is going to step up to the plate? Um, it 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 breaks my heart that the the EU may be even more inept and corrupt as as our own leadership here in the United States, uh, if, if that's possible. Um, uh, I think that the, the European um, <clears throat> Union, their, their, their own biopharmaceutical complex, which is very intertwined with ours, very intertwined with the World Economic Forum. I mean, Klaus Schwab, um, you know, he's, he's right there in Switzerland. He's kind of the hub of all of this. Um, uh, I, I think has has demonstrated an, an even more 
anti-democratic, authoritarian um, uh, thrust than, than our own government here in the United States. I mean, the the U.S. Constitution still, I mean, it's 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 not quite the the bright flame it was when James Madison wrote it. Um, but it, it there is a flicker there, and we can we can sort of fan it and you know restore some idea of, of the the um, the sovereignty of the individual citizen, the, the, you know the, the 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 individual prudent U.S. citizen to assess the world and make prudent decisions for himself and his family. That's a pretty long tradition in this country. Europe has a longer tradition of an authoritarian state structure of society. Now, I think the Europeans came a long way um, with mostly with Great Britain, you know, the, the great constitutional tradition, parliamentarian tradition of the United Kingdom showing the way. But um, it, it looks to me like just a profound regression um, during this COVID era. I've been particularly shocked to see what's happened in Germany and Austria, which are countries that I love very much. Um, I love German and Austrian culture, but the way the governments in those two nations have behaved in this, um, it's been appalling. Uh, of course, at the top of the list, which is strange because it's a, it's a British Commonwealth country, is Australia. Oh, yes. I mean, the conduct of the Australian government it is, is, is truly just shocking. I mean, it shocks um, the sensibilities of, of um, someone who cares about liberal democracy. I, I, I can't fathom how that's happened. I always so, thought that the Australians would be the first before the Canadian truckers. I thought the Australians would break it first. I, I mean, that's a mystery, and perhaps we'll penetrate the mystery. We're going to go to Australia and 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 meet with with people who do care about liberal democracy there. So maybe we'll maybe we'll learn something. Um, but you know, I I believe, and I'm biased because he's my co-author. But I believe Dr. McCullough has demonstrated some old-fashioned American leadership values in all of this that I think the rest of the world um, could 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 learn from. Well, I have mentioned Peter's name to those where, and I testified before the uh, before some parliamentarian members down in Australia uh, earlier this year, and so you know, I've told I've told them, you know. Just the other day, get Peter's book. So I'm glad to know you guys are going down under. All right. Uh, Happy New Year. Thank you for participating. And again, I want everybody to get The Courage to Face COVID-19 by Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake. Guys, thank thank you you very much. Happy New Year. Happy New Year Year to you. Thank you. Good luck with your travels. Thank you, ma'am.